Well, uh, one of the unfortunate uh, traditions in the English Bible tradition is the practice, uh, we saw it again today, and you see it in your Bibles, of editors inserting little summary phrases at the head of chapters and subdivisions, uh, which are, of course, found throughout our Bibles. These headings, of course, are helpful in helping us to, you know, find passages we're looking for. We all use them. But one of the real problems with these headings is that they send the message to you before you read the first line of the text telling you what that passage is about. And so often they get it wrong or they only tell part of the story. And a classic example is in both our texts today in 1 Corinthians 7, for example, where that text is entitled in most Bibles, marriage or instructions about marriage or something like that when it should be about marriage and celibacy. In the same way with Matthew 19, it's often given simply the heading divorce uh, rather than, uh, or teachings about divorce rather than also about celibacy. Both of those headings don't tell the full story, and that itself is instructive about the way that the celibate life had been downplayed in the way that we talk about the Christian tradition. And that is, in fact, uh, and this is the fifth building block in our theology of the body, is the remarkable gift of celibacy as an icon of the future eschaton. Now, in the, um, you know, in the previous text, in fact, or sermons on this uh, theme, we're looking at celibacy of the body, looking at how, what the Bible teaches about the body. Uh, in the same text, in 1 Corinthians 19, we actually saw this, uh, I'm sorry, Matthew 19, we saw this amazing uh, passage where the disciples are struck in awe at the high bar that Jesus holds for marriage. In fact, Jesus demonstrates in that text, we looked at two sermons ago in this series, that even in light of the fall, even after all the ravages of sin, even after all the brokenness that the world has experienced, he says God's design for marriage remains intact. And the disciples are so amazed by this that their response is almost modern. They said, well, maybe we, sh- maybe we should not even get married. If, th- if that's true, between a man and a woman, then we should probably not get married. Well, Jesus' response to this is, in fact, in many ways, uh, even more amazing. Because Jesus says, well, not everyone can receive this, but for those that has been given. So Jesus himself points to a situation where there's, in fact, a secondary gift, the sacred and high calling of singleness and celibacy. And we've seen already in the series that there are actually two meanings of the body. One is the the, the spousal meaning of the body, which is expressed through marriage and childbearing. Marriage is an icon of Christ in the church, and childbearing an icon of the Trinity. But we see this also, this high calling of celibacy, the celibate meaning of the body. Now, Augustine uh, famously wrote and has been quoted endlessly in our tradition, his uh, book on, on the goods, the three goods of marriage, which I think has become in some ways the kind of classic foundational teaching of the Christian view of marriage over the centuries. But he also wrote uh, his book on holy virginity, which argues that just as there are different stars and planets have different glories, so God established the glory of marriage as well as the glory of the celibate life. 
And Augustine himself, uh, as you know, after his garden experience with Tolle Lege, Tolle Lege, pick up and read, and he got converted, and Augustine himself embraced the celibate life in his own ministry. Now, the Roman Catholic tradition, as you all well know, uh, has enshrined the icon of celibacy in their priesthood. And so, in the sense, in the Roman Catholic world, an icon of priesthood is at the center of every congregational life. So you cannot ignore it. The Protestant world, for a lot of reasons, many of which are good reasons, uh, chose not to enshrine celibacy in the priesthood or in the pastors in the church. But the, the downside of that is it pushed, uh, essentially, celibacy and singleness to the margins in the life of the church. So many people who are, remain single in the church they find in the ministry of the church, they hear messages that somehow, I mean, to put it bluntly, say things in various ways, subtly perhaps, but say things to you like, well, a single person is someone who is just not yet married, or a single person is someone who is waiting to be married, or a single person is a person who just hasn't lost hope yet. You know, all of those kind of statements are said, and programmatic activity in the church often reinforces that. And we certainly have a lot of sympathy for the fact that the family has been a tremendous pressure and force of attack in our society, and so the church rightfully has come forward to, to stand with the family. But this has created an unnecessary, unneeded consequence for many of those who are in a different situation, status, in life. So what we want to do today is to go back and look at celibacy more carefully and recognize that, in fact, there are actually two great streams of celibacy and what they mean for the church that we need to recapture today. The first looks back to the dawn of creation before the very uh, big entrance of sin and recalls that state, and one looks forward to the future eschaton at the end of time in the marriage supper of the Lamb. Well, we'll begin with the first one. Uh, and these are the two meanings of the celibate life. The first, what I call the single-minded focus. Now, if you go to the Old Testament, you'll find that celibacy is not featured promised, pro uh, prominently in the Old Testament in the sense of lifetime celibate vows. So in the Old Testament, broadly speaking, marriage and child-rearing are regarded as holy obligations. But uh, in fact, if you look at even the those who given the most sacred callings, like, for example, a priest in the Old Testament, or, for example, the number six, the, uh, the, the famous Nazaritic vow, which is like one of the highest, most sacred vows, there are endless regulations, what you can't do, what you can't touch, what you can't uh, uh, eat, all kinds of regulations, but abstain from marriage is not one of them. And so in the Old Testament, we actually encounter celibacy in what we would call temporary celibate vows, but they itself say enormous things about celibacy in the context of the Old Testament. And there are three main categories of temporary celibacy in the Old Testament. First, you have the uh, Levitical uh, priestly celibacy that was temporary before a sacrifice, like in Leviticus 22 uh, or in 1 Samuel 21. You have the temporary celibacy of fighting men before a holy war. It's found in Joshua 3, Joshua 7, 2 Samuel 11. So before you went into a holy war, the men would consecrate themselves and they would be celibate during that period of fighting. And then we have the celibacy of the whole people of God 
and they're commanded to do prior to receiving the Ten Commandments in Exodus 19. Now, all three of those, the priesthood before a sacrifice, the men before a holy war, and all of God's people before receiving the Ten Commandments, all say the same thing. There's no question about it. The point of all of that is single-minded focus. It's recalling that time before the fall, before the entrance of sin and brokenness and all the distractions of sin, when people were focused completely on God, they focused, they were lost in His presence, and this, of course, becomes the, the attempt to recapture that. In your period of, you know, a holy war, you have to be totally focused, or when you see the law, we'll be totally focused. It's about focus. And this, by the way, is what is brought out in the New Testament in 1 Corinthians 7. Now, let me just say that the modern term singleness, which is, I think, the most common conventional term used for those who are unmarried and celibate, is a term not found in Scripture. In fact, in many ways, I think in some ways it reinforces the wrong ideas about the whole vision of celibacy in, the, in both Testaments, but certainly in the New Testament. Singleness, uh, in the biblical view, what we call singleness, does not refer to an autonomous solitude outside of Christian community. That is to push the whole thing back into that incrifatus sensei, that, that curved in upon oneself, and that is not the vision of the biblical uh, view. What we call singleness, or the single person, should be better framed as the single-focused person, the single-minded person, the undivided life. And this is exactly the language of 1 Corinthians 7. This is what Paul says. I would like you to be free from concern. An An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife, and his interests are divided. That's the key phrase. His interests are divided. In other words, uh, the undivided life is the single life. The married life is the divided life. An unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Uh, her aim is to, devote it to, is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, that you may live a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. 1 Corinthians 7, 32-35. Now this means that some of you could be called to a ministry which is so engrossing and so urgent for the sake of the kingdom of God that it calls for your full and undivided attention. In fact, nothing else can do. There are certain ministries in the church that are so important that their only possible way of that ministry being extended is through the celibate life. This is the undivided life. There's some ministries which are so entrenched by Satan has his claws so deeply in a situation, the only hope is a celibate response. It's kind of like in the military. You have the general army, you know, that's out there fighting, doing various things which the army can do. It's kind of the normal work of the army. But there's some things where you have to call in the special forces, right? Special forces come in to handle certain things, special training for that. There's a celibate group that is like the special forces. They come in to deal with special missions that only can be done in that single-minded way. Take St. Anthony, 
take Mother Teresa. There are hundreds of examples like this, thousands, hundreds of thousands throughout the history of the church. Now, if you ever go and visit the, the nation's capital, um, you, will, you should definitely take time, and it's election day, so don't go today, we kind of unrest today, but you know, normally, in normal times, if you go to the U.S. Capitol, go to Statuary Hall. It's just uh, south of the Rotunda, and in Statuary Hall, it's, it's a beautiful amphitheater structure, beautiful structure, and every state is allowed to place two statues in Statuary Hall. It is not a federal decision, it has nothing to do with the federal government. It is simply a, an allowance for each state, and they can vote on whoever they want to put in their statues in Statuary Hall. So if you go there, for example, if you're anybody here from Oklahoma? No Oklahomans here? They're all, on, they're all watching. They're all with us. Okay, Oklahomans out there. We always have Oklahomans around. But, you know, you get uh, Will Rogers there. You get Sequoia there. If you're from Massachusetts, you'll get Samuel Adams. You'll get John Winthrop. Anybody from Ohio? Okay, Ohio. Okay, Thomas Edison is in, the, in one of their statues, for example, an inventor. It's usually politicians, often inventors, people like that. But you go to you go see your state and see what's there uh, in, your, in your state. But good old Hawaii. Anybody from Hawaii? No, no Hawaiians, okay. Hawaii. Oh, we have a Hawaiian, God bless you, all right. Hawaii is uh, one of only two, two statues that has shrines a preacher of the gospel. And the person that Hawaii, one of the two that Hawaii has put forward is in Statue Hall, and go see it today, is Father Damon. Now, Father Damon is known broadly in the Roman Catholic Church as Saint Damon of Molokai, and he was a missionary in the 19th century. Now, why would he be chosen of all the amazing people that come from Hawaii that could easily have been put in Statuary Hall? Why did they choose not any politician, a preacher of the gospel? The reason is because the extraordinary work that he did with those who have Hansen's disease, which we commonly call leprosy. Now, in the 19th century, uh, there, and we, here we are in a pandemic, we can get the point, people were so afraid of the transmissibility of, of leprosy, of Hansen's disease, they didn't know what to do. So they decided to take everyone that had this disease and they would isolate them off, off an, an island, this is like an exile island off the coast of the other islands of Hawaii. And this small island owned by Hawaii today is an island where they basically exiled these people who had this disease that were left there to die. Now, the, the protocols were so strict, it makes our protocols seem mild, because if anybody were to go to that island, they could never return. It was a one-way trip. It's not about social distancing, masking, none of that. If you went there for any way, any reason, how far away, you could not come back. So Father Damon said, how are they going to hear the gospel? Someone must go to them. So 1873, he chose, knowing he could never return, to go to that island. He went there, he lived, and he lived there for 16 years before he himself uh, eventually died of Hansen's disease. The process, he brought the gospel, he brought good news, he built churches there, amazing ministry. And he's there in our nation's capital. I have a picture here 
of uh, Father Damon. This is just two years before he died. You can see already he's ravaged by, by the disease in, in this picture. But this is a picture of a man who, in many ways, he recapitulates the incarnation, doesn't he, right? He goes in as a gospel servant. He goes into a situation that's hopeless, helpless, marginalized, without hope. He goes in as an element of the gospel, and he brings light and life. That's the incarnation in seed form, right? That is an example of the celibate life. And, of course, he obviously had to do this as a celibate person. The second uh, mean of celibacy is looking in the other direction, the eschatological embodiment of that union with God, the great beatific vision. And this is where we get to the teaching in Mark chapter 12. Now, in those teachings, also we read the Matthew Matthew 22 passage, I guess. But the point is, in that passage, Jesus says, quite again shockingly, in the resurrection, people will neither marry nor be given in marriage. Now, there we have the big aha moment for us. Here, he reminds us that as important as marriage is, and we spent a whole sermon on the importance of marriage, but as important as marriage is, it is not an end in itself. It's a pointer to a greater spiritual reality. In other words, marriage is only for this life, but in the final day, we're all going to be in the marriage supper of the Lamb, and there'll be no more marriage the way that we associate it at this point. Therefore, we're seeing that actually marriage is a pointer to something and that those who are called to the celibate life, they are living already in that eschatological anticipation of the future state. There are certain people who have already captured that future vision to which we're all headed. And they're already embodying that now. So therefore, the people who are called to the celibate life are already an eschatological embodiment of the future state. We should honor them for that. They're already ahead of us. That's how Paul says that marriage is good, but this, they do even better because they're already anticipating the future state. It's also important to realize this is why in the Bible, no, one of the many other reasons why marriage, uh, that sexual activity is kept within the context of marriage between a man and a woman. The reason for this is because celibacy is actually meant to be the norm of which marriage is an intersection. So all of us before the married state are supposed to experience and are designed to experience celibacy prior to marriage. So we all of us, even those thus who are not called to celibacy, lifetime celibacy, have celibacy in that part of our lives where we already begin to think about, anticipate the future eschaton, and we have that single-minded focus. Then even in marriage, as our text says, even there he intersects uh, celibacy into it because he said in our text that married couples from time to time should refrain from sexual activity by mutual consent for the sake of prayer. So there's times when married couples should agree to be celibate for a short period of time in order to focus, again, single-minded focus. You're trying to capture that. So even in marriage, you're not to forget the celibate state. And then after your spouse passes away, you're still told to maintain chastity in those situations, right? So even after you've had a faithful marriage for you know, 20, 30 years or however long it may be, and then that spouse passes away, you are then called to re-enter the celibate state. 
unless you're unless you're young and Paul says then you should get remarried but if you're not remarried then you should retain in that state the point is is that the celibacy intersects us at various points and that's because we already want we want to remember what it's like to embody the future reality of the marriage supper of the lamb so the bible begins with one kind of marriage adam and eve but it culminates in another kind of marriage between christ and his church and we're all part of that bride and so this is why i think bishop robert Barron beautifully says that celibacy is meant to be an eschatologically fascinating sign to the to the world and to the church you see we live in a culture that is massively overly sexualized and therefore sexualization runs into everything in our culture and so a person who's called a sub at life is a wake-up call to a world to notice and regard other values that are deeper and more profound. One of the things remarkable today is that it used to be because the Roman Catholic Church honors the celibate life and puts it at the center of their ministry, they, of course, had amazing monastic communities, not simply the cloistered time, but also the activistic communities that are involved in the community with schools and helping at-risk children and everything else. Well, this has now become a huge global Protestant movement. Now there are many, many Protestant monasteries all over the world. There are also ecumenical monasteries that contain both uh, Protestants and Roman, Catholic, Roman Catholics. And so this is now becoming a global movement where if you did want to live in community, it's not required, but if you wanted to live in community with other celibates, that's now a very strong option within the, uh, the, the Protestant community. But even in the full vocation of life, in the ordinary vocation of life, the celibate life in the vocations of life is an extremely powerful sign to the world. Now, when I was a a seminary student, uh, I took a course, like many of you uh, have done, courses like this called The Church's Response to Poverty. So we were required to take a, uh, a course, and, uh, do, and, and part of that course was to take a study of one particular situation where someone's trapped in poverty and divine, divine, divine ways to respond to that. So I chose to do some work in Haverhill, Massachusetts, just north of where I lived. Now Haverhill, Massachusetts, which ironically, many, many years later, I actually would be a pastor in that city. But in the 80s, when I was a student at the time, uh, Haverhill, Massachusetts was, was called the worst city in America to live in. How's that for a distinction? All kinds of issues and crime and problems. But one of the problems which I want to mention was the fact that uh, this was at one point the shoe capital of the world. More shoes are made in Haverhill than any city in the world. And of course, all of that eventually passed away. There are now no shoes made in Haverhill. So the result was poverty and problems. There were these massive houses that once you know, featured all the streets of Haverhill where the rich people lived that owned all those mills, and hundreds worked in the mills on the Merrimack River. Well, these houses had been turned into what was called slum landlording. And you've seen this in every city in America, where you have a large home that's now in an impoverished area. Somebody buys the home, and they divide it up into just endless uh, little spaces to put families in. So these homes, which used to be large homes for single families, were now just filled with a dozen or more families, often in very difficult situations. 
Uh, the heat wasn't working properly. I did my investigation. The heat wasn't working right. They, they would have leaking faucets. They were leaking toilets. Of course, they had to pay for high water bills because of that. It was a whole thing. They were entrapped in all kinds of horrible things. So I decided to go and um, meet with the landlord who owned one of these no notorious houses and share with him, in Jesus' name, uh, all the ways he was harming the poor. That was my project. So I was getting ready to do this. I'm 22 years old, you know, ready to go and uh, confront, you know, the world of systemic poverty, you know, et cetera. And someone said to me, you realize that Haver, Massachusetts is completely Roman Catholic. It's like, this is a Roman Catholic zone. You can't go up there without a nun. And I said, I don't know any nuns. I, I, do, I, do you know any nuns? I just didn't know any nuns. And so I said, well, how do you, how do you like, like, can you get to know nuns? Are they, are they, are they allowed? I didn't even, I had no, no, I had no connection to a nun. So someone said, well, there, there's a, you know, a monastic community down here. You can go and find out. So I went down there and I talked and I said, I, I need a nun who has a heart for social justice. So they said, oh, well, sister so-and-so, you know, she, this is her thing, you know. So I met with her and I explained the situation. She said, I'd be delighted to go with you. So you can imagine this, 22-year-old Tim Tennant, future president of Asbury Seminary, and this dear nun, we're driving up, and she was, you know, on the elderly, elderly side, you know, uh, going up to Hale, Massachusetts. We get there, we met with the, the, the man who owned this, this, the house, and uh, we, I went through a long list of all the things that were violations of codes and problems and how this was hurting people. I went through the whole thing. She was completely silent, didn't say a word. So finally, at the end of my presentation, uh, he says to me, um, why, should I, why, should, why should I do? Why, why, why should I care about all this? Why, why do you, what's, the, what's this all about? Why should I do this? So I said, well, you know, because this is hurting the poor. This is hurting people's family. I was kind of da 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 So I, I, that kind of said my spiel. Meanwhile, the nurse then hadn't said anything. Suddenly she speaks, speaks up. And she points her finger to the man. She says, besides all of that, she kind of pointed to me, besides all of that, if you don't do it, you'll go to hell. <laughs> I was so shocked. I didn't know none said such things. <laughs> if you don't fix this, you'll go to hell. And he turned to her and said, I'll take care of it. As he drove back, she said to me, that she hadn't said much really the whole way up there, not just a few, she said, you have to know how to talk to these people. <laughs> what was so great about that was that it taught me something profound about how you look at life. I, my entire presentation, looking back on it, now granted, I was a young seminary student, I didn't, I didn't thought through it the whole thing well theologically. My entire thing was horizontal. I was talking about, you know, what he was doing and that's hurting the poor. All those things were true. I think everything I said was true. But she pulled the eschatological card. And she pulled, she said, this is not about, I mean, of course it's about the poor. It's about you and your work. The world. Of course that's true. But the real problem is you're doing this. You're sinning against God. And if you do that, you'll go to hell. People who do such things go to hell. That was, a nun taught me that. So, let's praise God for these celibate ones who walk in our midst. Those who are called to the single-minded life. 
And I'm so glad that one like that in my young form of my life taught me how to see things clearly and make it to the chase. That's what they do for us. I have seen a whole life. I have seen how those who are called to the state have transformed me over and over again to lose all of my distractions and remember what it's all about. And God has put those eschatological people in our midst. And may we honor them for their giftedness because it is, Christ tells us, a wonderful gift for the kingdom. Thanks be to God. Amen.